This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back to Almost Heretical. This week, we are talking about the myth of the slippery slope. Nate, what the heck are we talking about? Yeah, the slippery slope. I mean, I think we've all heard that terminology before. Whether we were kind of warning someone about the slippery slope or being warned about the slippery slope, we've we've heard it. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's this idea that specifically when we talk about theology and doctrine, and when we say theology, what we just mean is like what comes into our heads when we think about God? What are our ideas and our understandings of who God is, what the Bible is, all that kind of stuff? So the idea of the slippery slope is essentially that you may start to believe things or read things or listen to things that are kind of on the the edge of this um, this circle. And when I say circle, here's another metaphor that we'll probably talk a lot about and we have talked about on the show before. There's this circle, it's the way I picture it, almost like this, this country um, that has a circular border. And the, this border is clearly defined by those inside the circle as what it means to be inside and outside of this community. And that's explained and defined and established by kind of denominations and coalitions and kind of those that um, the border makers, those at the top. And so the idea of the slippery slope, as I understand it, is that if you start to kind of um, believe things that are right on that line of the circle, the the border, um, or maybe just on the other side of the border, that's okay and that's a good challenge maybe for for the for the circle and for those inside but it's potentially a slippery slope that's going to lead you far away from that border of the circle into who knows what yeah so what we want to talk about this week is that we think this idea of a slippery slope is basically a false construct it's a myth and it's one that can be used in some pretty troublesome ways and one that Nate and I, and I think a lot of us, have encountered almost constantly in our Christian lives, uh, kind of as this great threat. We kind of want to just take a look at this threat and see if it's really as scary as it's made out to be. Okay, so let's just talk about even just the the term or the the idea of a slippery slope. I mean, you don't fall upwards. (laughs) So the idea is that you're falling down from some level that you've achieved. You, You fall down a slope, right? Yeah, I mean, loaded into this metaphor, this analogy, is the presumption that you are standing on the mountaintop. And really, this comes from uh, the history of, of Protestant religion, and especially in America, denominationalism, where you essentially have each denomination or group of the church uh, choosing for itself what it thinks the purest, most biblical, or most Christ-centered, whatever form of Christianity it is. So what ends up happening is that each denomination or each wing of the church essentially believes that it is the purest form of church that exists. That's why they believe what they believe. And that gets put forth in this idea. You know, we we don't say we're on the mountaintop, but the whole metaphor is that you are in this place of security, arrival, safety, and you just have to stay there. Like you'll be okay. You're in uh you're in the bright spot, you're in the glory as long as you don't fall from here. And I think the irony is that those of us who have supposedly slid down this slippery slope, you get to the other side and you realize that was not the mountaintop. That was more like being in a little cage in a cave 
and we couldn't see the world. And it was not this mountaintop experience that it was propped up to be. Okay, just before we move on and talk about this, if you play this all the way out, this could sound to someone like there's no truth and we need to not feel like we have the truth and other people don't have the truth. We just need to like kind of do away with these these borders and it's all truth. Yeah, but again, I think the perspective that's being captured, which I think you can see this in a hundred different ways and different segments of evangelicalism, is that we have arrived at the truth. We have attained it. We have acquired ultimate truth. In a sense, we, we kind of have a monopoly on the truth. And we just have to stay here secure in this this place of safety. And the the premise is one, honestly, that's just incredibly arrogant, which is to say that anybody who's not sitting with us on our mountaintop doesn't have the truth. And that to go from our group to another group or to spend some time outside of any group altogether is to like fall into this pit of despair of postmodern. But this is, but it, so this is where like sola scriptura comes from, right? Because they're like, okay, well, we don't want to be the ones just defining that. It's only going to be the Bible then. We'll just, we'll just go to the Bible to talk about what the truth is. But the problem that comes with that is you're talking about your interpretation of the Bible. And so when we talk about these mountaintops, I guess that's what we're saying, right? We're saying we've arrived with the correct interpretation of the Bible. We're all using the Bible in some way or another, as far as these theological groups and denominations go. But our interpretation of the Bible is the slope that you'd be falling off of. Yeah, I mean, that again, that's the irony of, of American denominationalism, which I think is just a logical outworking of basically the American religious experiment, which is that each and every group, and there are thousands and thousands of them, they're claiming a version of this Protestant idea of sola scriptura, even though they're t- ripping it out of its its context. But then what everybody's saying is, I'm the one who's doing that right. I'm the one whose interpretation is the best interpretation. So if you move from my interpretation or our interpretation to anybody else's interpretation, you are falling away from safety. You are now entering this place of risk and danger, and it could kill you, basically. This is the the metaphor that you're going to plummet off of this cliff. I think just the irony that is worth pointing out is like, that's the metaphor that people use who are in that group. But for those of us who have slid down the slippery slope or jumped off the slippery slope or whatever, we use a very different metaphor or set of metaphors. And they're usually something like, uh, you talk about there being a circle. I talk about there being a box. People use language about tribes and tribalism, exclusivism. It's this idea that once you've slid down the slope, you, you look from the outside back at what you used to be in And you realize how limited and exclusive and reductionistic this little world was. And it's basically like this idea that you were led to believe that if you fell from this little bubble you were living in, you would die. And what so many of us have experienced is actually it wasn't until we left that bubble that we realized how much life there ever was to live in the first place. So the irony is that the metaphors completely switch and the language that outsiders are using to talk about what the in-group is, is a totally different set of metaphors than the metaphors that the inside group is using to talk about the outsiders. So the inside group and much of American religion is this idea that we have arrived and we can keep you safe as long as you don't fall away from us. And the outside group is looking at that and pointing out all the problems and critiques and saying, actually, there's so many good things to be found outside of that little bubble.
There's this idea in in Christian mysticism, I heard it through Richard Rohr, that you need to go from this state of order through a process of chaos and disorder. Might take a long time, might take a while, and it might be meshed with this last phase that can last a lifetime of reordering. And it's almost like a necessary process to go through. Yeah, I mean, all the way back to St. John of the Cross talked about the experience dubbed the dark night of the soul, where a person goes from, you know, the experience or perhaps a lifetime of faith in the old mystical language of consolation, the experience that God is with them. And at some point, many of us go through some sort of experience of complete desolation, uh, where it feels like the God we knew is gone, is not with us. Everything we thought we we knew about our life of faith no longer feels true and leads to this place of utter despair and, and disillusionment and lostness. And uh, St. John of the Cross said, similar to Richard Rohr and so many others, that that experience is actually one of the ways that we as Christians mature into a, a deeper, more robust faith. And today we use the language of deconstruction and reconstruction to talk about experiences where the ideas, theology, the world that we used to inhabit no longer works. It no longer fits our experience of life. We can't hold on to it anymore. And we have this feeling of like falling or crumbling, this domino effect where our old faith seems to to fall over. But it's through that deconstruction that we're able to reconstruct something oftentimes bigger, broader, more robust, more emotionally resonant. It basically is like a rebuilding process that ends up being really, really good in many people's minds necessary for Christian growth. So the the irony is that in one world of the church, you have this idea that we have to fear this fall. We have to fear deconstruction. It is the great threat avoided at all costs. And you have a whole other wing of the church that's saying it's that very fear It's that very addiction to certainty and refusal to let go of your own system of beliefs that is the main obstacle getting in the way of you and Christian maturity, and that it's only through sliding down the slippery slope that one actually becomes mature as a Christian. So let's talk about this. What are you actually needing to let go of, and what does this process look like, I guess? Yeah, totally. And I think there's a hundred ways to answer that question. The first one that comes to my mind is so much of the reformed Calvinistic evangelical church world is constructed on systematic theology. The whole idea is you, you take the Bible and you dissect it into various theological doctrines, and then you essentially arrange those doctrines in a kind of connected order, and you create basically a new way of expressing and articulating the core pieces of things that we have to believe that are true. This is called systematic theology. It gets bundled up in books of systematic theology. It's essentially what most of the seminary experiences for most pastors in Reformed world. And it's the thought framework behind most of what people experience in those churches. Basically, to grow as a Christian, you are supposed to grow in your understanding of systematic theology. For me, it was those very systems of ideas and pieces of those systems. So particular views on hell or particular views on what salvation even means or the role of justice with the gospel or how to think about the gospel, kind of like the atonement conversations we were just having. When various pieces of those 
sets of ideas that I was told to change my mind on any of these ideas is to fall down this slippery slope. For me, it just came down to, I couldn't believe all those things anymore. And so I had to decide how I was going to respond to that. Okay. So you said that's largely what it means to mature in your faith. A, a church would say you need to grow in your systematic theology. That's not, that was not my experience, I guess. Um, it was not, you need to necessarily grow in your systematic theology. You want to grow in your experience of God and your, uh, your love and your trust for for him and your love for Jesus. But I think it's when you start thinking about, like you said, some of these particular views or some of these particular systematic theologies like hell or what the cross means, um, that's when you discover that what's really the goal here is to stay within this circle or these little circles of here's where here's what you can kind of think about the cross. Here's what you can kind of think about hell. Um, so it's when you kind of push on that that you discover the circle. I don't think inside you're feeling like, oh, I'm supposed to grow in my systematic theology. It's when you start to think through those things that you might discover that. You know what I mean there? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think one one way that I've come to see this whole slippery slope mentality uh, playing out, like one of the ways I can identify it, a, a litmus test of sorts, is actually to see what people use as their own litmus test to decide who is in and who's out. And so various people, various wings of the church will have either points of doctrine or even individual people who transcend into a kind of defining line or boundary marker. So for instance, there's a whole sector of the church that openly, overtly uses the debate on homosexuality as an absolute litmus test for like who is church and who isn't church or who is Christian and who has fallen away from Christian faith. So for many in conservative Christianity, to affirm homosexuality is to have plummeted down this slippery slope. No matter what else you believe, no matter what else, what other kind of, you know, life of faith you're showing, that's, that's a litmus test. Or for instance, there's a whole sector of the church that wants to say, if you don't believe that hell is eternal conscious torment, which is a whole debate that's been going on for a while now, then that's another litmus test. But I think even more like ugly to me is that there are literally people. I mean, you just mentioned Richard Rohr and I know a whole segment of people, including the seminary I went to, that has essentially a list of people who are the the captains of the outsiders. They're like the kings of the bottom of the slippery slope. And so people like Richard Rohr, Greg Boyd, people like Brian Zond who are pushing back on penal substitution. And essentially the king of these kings is Rob Bell. And he's basically like, I've literally in seminary heard the term Rob Bell-ism used as a kind of theological category to describe those who have fallen from evangelicalism. (laughs) Like basically you have these people who become symbols um, so there, if you read their books, if you listen to their podcasts, if you even just seriously consider their ideas, then you are teetering on the edge of this plummet into to no man's land. Okay, why is that? I mean, seriously, like what? What? Why is that? What's the what's the fear there? I guess. I mean, so so think about Rob Bell. So historically, Rob Bell got farewelled, <laughs> farewelled by John Piper. Uh, when he published his book, Love Wins, that was largely pushing back on the traditional view of hell. And to Piper, Rob Bell's questioning of John Piper's Calvinistic understanding of the idea of hell 
was enough that he was willing to publicly tweet that this man had departed from the faith and essentially enacted this kind of like casting out Twitter ceremony to let the world know that Rob Bell was no longer safe. He was on the outside. And so much of this comes from because in the inside group, especially in the Reformed Calvinistic world, what it means to lead and pastor is basically to protect people from believing anything other than Reformed Calvinistic interpretation of Christianity. I would just push back. I think it's to protect the flock. And what that means then is a lot of different things. But one or some of those things are to guard against falling down the slope, which means guard against listening and and following these types of ideas. Yeah, we've talked about before how largely faith has been reconstructed in these worlds to believing the right set of ideas, right? So there's been a bunch of recent, great recent work to try to show that faith biblically means allegiance or loyalty or or like trusting service. But in the reform camp for years and years now, it's basically meant belief in the systematic theology of that camp. And so you're right. It is a sense of they're protecting the sheep, they're pastoring, they're saving souls by preventing those people from believing deceitful ideas. And then grounded in points of scripture in the New Testament, warning against false doctrines and, and heresies. And they do that all the time. But the idea is basically the primary task is to, uh, to keep people in the fold of this ultimate truth, which they have attained to. And so really, some of the greatest threats out there are ideas. Contact with threatening ideas is one of the things that you're supposed to protect your kids from, you're supposed to protect your church from. And ironically, honestly, tragically, it's that mindset that you have to stay away from scary ideas that leads the vast majority of evangelical kids when they go off to college to either be complete jerks on one hand and turn into kind of like fundamentalist cultists who basically deny everything, every form of science and every uh, piece of information out there. Or what happens with most people is they completely fall away from their Christian faith because they've been told that to be Christian means you can't believe any of these other ideas. You can't even interact uh, honestly with them. So to me, the deep tragedy, the thing that really frustrates me is that so many leaders in the evangelical world have structured their faith and the the view of faith that they propagate to people around them such that the way they lead makes it so that people are more likely to remain in their specific tradition and denomination, but less likely to remain Christians. Explain that. So if the whole premise is to depart from our tradition, to leave our denomination, to disagree with this seminary, to read this book that disagrees with the way I've been teaching Paul, whatever. You pick a a thousand different examples to change your mind about uh, how to think about hell, to think about different theories of the atonement, all of that stuff. If to depart from your particular tradition is to essentially depart from the faith via falling down the slippery slope out of faith, then what that does is it, it 
essentially indoctrinates people to feel, okay, if I'm going to be a Christian, this is how I have to be a Christian. There is no other way to be a Christian. And what that means is people are far, those people are far more likely, if they're going to be a Christian, to be that kind of Christian. But the reality that I think we've seen prove itself over and over and over again is it's those kind of Christians who are far less likely to remain Christians at all. In other words, if if there's no room for flexing within your experience of Christianity and church and faith life, then you're you're far less likely to be able to hold on to that version of faith as you go through various forms of life, as new science occurs, as new discoveries have made, as you experience different points of joy and pain and relationship and all that. If there's no room for your your faith to flex, then it's much much harder to hold on to. And so what I look at it in and get deeply uh, frustrated with is that the people that are doing this, the leaders that have, have construed faith this way, I think they know this. And what it shows to me is they actually prefer a world in which people are more likely to walk away from Christianity altogether because those that stay are more likely to stay in their camp. They actually think that's a better world. Yeah. I mean, I think they would say what these people are going to, um, these other ideas of Christianity that they're going to, that's not Christianity. So it's not, I'd rather keep someone in my camp than have them go to another camp. They're saying I'd rather keep someone inside Christianity than keep them outside Christianity. That's, I think that's how they're thinking about it though. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. But again, when you look at it from the outside, especially like I remember, you know, working for a church in a big city in San Francisco. And the number of churches that we thought were like actually Christian churches that we could send people to or partner with was a tiny percentage of the churches in San Francisco. So we had essentially accepted this mindset that most Christians aren't actually Christians. Most of the church isn't actually church. Only our version of the church is church. So you're right. It is that idea that you're protecting people within Christianity, but it's that very idea which is causing most people to leave American Christianity. Yeah, and this is the group that we're largely doing this show for, and we hear from you all a lot. And it's really encouraging to hear that this show helps you not feel crazy, just even being able to like talk about this. And we've just made a decision that that's, that's who we want to, to be with and to, um, to encourage and to give hope to. And we've said it before on the show, to give the Bible back to and to give Jesus back to. Because I think oftentimes... We're not rejecting God, the Bible, Jesus, or even Christian community. We're rejecting versions of that that we saw. And that's what we really care about is showing that you're not rejecting God, actually. You're rejecting a version of God, one picture of God that may or may not even be true. And you don't have to leave in order to find the things that you really care about and that you really love. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. You know, that's kind of different way of phrasing what I was just trying to get at. Changing the way you think about God doesn't have to mean abandoning faith in God altogether. So if if you're one of those who's been brought up, honestly, to fear uh, a whole set of ideas or ways of thinking about God or life or Christianity, 
and you feel like basically there's been little room to flex in your faith. That's honestly so much of what we're trying to have conversations about and do this show for. I mean, much of the topics we cover, for instance, you know, pushing back on penal substitution are exactly the, the kind of topics that people want to say, oh, that's the slippery slope. You know, I, I literally heard someone in a seminary class say, don't you think anyone who pushes back or questions or critiques penal substitution is just starting down the slippery slope? And I remember sitting in that classroom and just feeling this whole mix of emotions of like, I'm pushing back on penal substitution. Does anyone want to ask me like where I slid to? You know, does anyone like actually want to talk to those who have supposedly gone down the slippery slope? I think the fear is that you're asking that question and then you're going to ask, ask the next question. And then people look at where Rob Bell is now and say, he's just given in on this, 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 and this. And you would have to, if you're going to be true to kind of the process you started, right? Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Like there's, there's a sense in which there, there is a, a truth that I'm actually like willfully acknowledging in the slippery slope metaphor, which is that there are many different ways to slide away from one very rigid set of ideas about life and God. What we're pushing back on is that that is intrinsically bad or something to be afraid of. Again, like I think there's a lot of wisdom in the mystic tradition that says it's actually some form of that experience, the loss of certainty, the experience of doubt, wrestling with God. It's, it's those experiences that actually lead to maturity, to a deeper sense of love and compassion for others, to a, a more robust Christianity. So we're kind of just here saying like, hey, we went down the slippery slope. It's okay, everybody. Like, we're still alive. We're still Christians. We still love Jesus. Like, this isn't the pit of despair they, they always told us it would be. There's actually some really good, beautiful, life-giving theology on the other side. And again, in, in my metaphor, like, what I look at now, I certainly wasn't standing on a mountaintop before the last five years, you know? And I And I don't think 20 years from now... I'll be feeling like I'm climbing back up to the to the top of that mountain because everything in, in the meantime has just been so horrible and oppressive and whatever. I actually feel like all those cracks that led me to stop holding on to the old system, to reference a Leonard Cohen song, it's through those cracks that the light gets in. And uh, I think a lot of what you and I have experienced, Nate, is that there's actually a much better life on the other side. And so when we look back, we see this small little circle or this small little bubble, and we're so glad to have been liberated from the smallness of that world. Yeah, I just remember feeling like things didn't quite work, and I wasn't happy with how things worked in the actual world with friends and neighbors and, and people. But then starting to like think through those things and question those things, you kind of get that feeling in the pit of your stomach, like, I'm departing from the truth, I'm departing from what's right and what's correct. And I think the biggest re realization and revelation for me was the discovery of sort of the ancient church and the Orthodox church and some things that were actually older than the Reformation or, or even older than like Augustinian thought. Um, and it really just opened my eyes to like, I mean, we're humans. We want to do things with other people. And there's a, there's a trust that comes when, when a certain number of people are doing something or thinking a certain way about something, which I think is, is the, the nature of the 
the kind of the security that comes from the circle, right? There's a lot of people in that circle. And so you trust it more. And so I think that's when I started to see that like, oh, there are other things. I'm not going to call them circles, but there are other uh, ways to think that a lot of people are in and a lot of people have always been in. It just gave me security and comfort in, in fully being able to kind of release some things, not release everything, but release a lot of, a lot of things that I held pretty rigidly and really open myself up to other ways of thinking while still remaining Christian. Yeah, totally. I think there are two, uh, kind of like two channels of that, that I've experienced. And now it's like hard to remember how I lived before. The first is, is realizing how big and broad Christianity and the church actually is right. And realizing there are so many other ways of thinking and realizing that my view within the reformed tradition was such a small piece of the overall puzzle of the 2000 years of, of life and thinking in the church and to realize, Oh, there are other metaphors for understanding Jesus. There are other ways of telling this story. There are other ways of practicing this faith. There's the mystic traditions and the Catholic monastic traditions and Eastern Orthodoxy with 2000 years of continuous theology. Like there, the church and Christianity is bigger. And there's actually something about that that has made faith much easier. Um, faith was harder when when it could only be practiced in this very small and specific uh, way. But then the second piece too is um, is just the the general open mindedness. And what I mean by that is like someone on Twitter that we follow, I, I can't remember who it was, had this really good thread pointing out that connected to what we're saying, we're in in much of evangelicalism. Uh, faith is essentially believing in a set of ideas. He's pointing out that where that really finds its truest form is, is faith is believing hard things. And specifically, like to be really faithful is to believe things that people dislike you and persecute you for. And what this does is that combined with this idea of to believe other things or even encounter other ideas is this slippery slope that we have to be afraid of, is it reinforces, indoctrinates closed-mindedness. And essentially, I, I watch this in myself and so many others, it, it very much gets to the point where we are intellectually, psychologically fragmented because we've been told we are supposed to compartmentalize our thinking. So this shows up in the church's war against evolution, right? Where you still have people arguing from the Bible for a six-day creation and a 4,000-year-old earth in spite of of all of the science and the whole force of modern discoveries that simply fail to make that a feasible idea, right? Like the sign of, of utter faithfulness in that world is to be like, you're right. It doesn't make any sense. It's scientifically false, but I'm going to believe it anyway. And that, I, that like thing where basically there's this great divide between science and your own life experiences and even emotional resonance, like Another example, this is this is where I think it all, um, where I just like refuse to be complicit theologically anymore, was with the view of meticulous sovereignty that says anything that happens in the world, including all of the little bad things that happen, happen because God chose for them to happen and because he wanted those things to happen. If you have suffered enough or, or sat with people who are suffering enough, you realize how atrocious that bit of theology is. And what I watched with so many people is they knew that, 
They knew that idea was the most oppressive thing in their heads when they encountered suffering, but they believed that what it meant for them to hold on to their faith was to keep believing that idea. They had to keep believing in that version of God, in that version of life, even though it it was honestly their least favorite part of their Christianity. So to me, there's this like shrinking that happens to us emotionally, psychologically, intellectually, that honestly is like our whole person. When our, our soul is divided between what we think we have to believe and what all of life experience says we probably should believe. And so for me, the, the second and greater liberation was this realization that like, I don't need to be scared of truth. Like truth is, is truth. And if it's, if something is really true and I believe that this world was created by God, who is the founder of wisdom, then I don't need to be scared uh, of some truth and protect myself from it. I actually can embrace all of it and God can help me to sift the good from the, the bad. I knew someone who used to say that faith isn't trying to believe something you know isn't true um, or you know isn't right or real. And I think that's feels like what you're trying to say there. I do think that it's gotten more nuanced over the years as we talk about evolution and science and um, as the the reformed or evangelical world engages more with culture. I think the thoughts and the arguments have become more nuanced, but I think at the end of the day, it still is within this pretty small circle that you need to you need to stay inside of. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think the fracturing and fragmenting has been so obvious that it's forced uh, people to get a little more more nuanced. But honestly, dude, it's still it's still really blatant. Like there's this uh, visceral. It's it's funny. I, I reference seminary a lot because it it honestly feels like the brightest manifestation of all of these aspects of evangelicalism. It's like kind of when you get to the source and you see everything for like it's in its purest form, like the the disdain for psychology and social science in the Christian academic world and evangelicalism, it's honestly crazy. Like it's really crazy where you have basically two sides of this war of you've got one side who's, who's wanting to say like, if we're going to treat our jobs as anything like counselors and like try to, to care holistically for people, I think we probably should like, appreciate and take seriously like you know modern scientific discoveries about how humans function and the role of relationships and attachment theory all that sort of stuff and then you've got this whole other world it went by the name of the biblical counseling uh idea for a while it's it's changed titles a a couple times but it's this idea that any information any discovery that comes from outside of the Bible is to be rejected. And so psychology is a threat. Sociology is a threat. Anthropology is a threat. Basically, if you don't see it in the Bible, it's, it's not helpful and we need to be wary of that, that thing. And it, it honestly has made the church in so many ways, the least competent sphere of offering like soul care and counseling, even though it's the place that claims more than any other sphere, that that's exactly what it's there for. But that just comes from the second Peter. Um, he's granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I mean, that's that's where people get that from. It's by going to let's go to the let's go to the Bible and see what the Bible says about that. And the Bible says in Second Peter that we have all we need right here. 
You you see what I'm saying? I see what you're saying, but again, it's it's a a bad reading of that verse. It's a bad reading of the passages talking about protecting against doctrine uh, to interpret all this. I mean, you just push back like, where does the Bible tell you to brush your teeth? Right? Like it doesn't, but I'll just go out and say like, you're a bad parent. If you tell your kids not to brush their teeth, like where does the Bible tell you to poop in the toilet instead of next to the toilet? Like it doesn't, but you should probably just do the former instead of the latter. But it's, it's this, specifically like why do we not like why is that not a fight right like why is no one fighting over teeth brushing or like hygiene we accept like hygiene science for the most part aside from vaccinations and all that uh like why is there this rejection of the intellectual sciences and the wisdom that they have provided it's specifically because ideas are are perceived as the great threat and the way that people have interpreted the way that evangelicalism has interpreted the Bible based on, I would say a, a really confused idea of inerrancy is that it is somehow this handbook given to provide you your worldview sufficient to everything pertaining to life. And we can debunk that on a later episode, but it's more just this idea of like what that creates in people, especially as we live in this modern scientific world where, I mean, You've got TED Talks, and we just have so much access to information and knowledge that in today's world, this anti-intellectualism that's kind of run through evangelicalism for a long time, it's just like so at odds with with the world we're living in, which is, again, why so many college students abandon their Christian faith, because they've basically been protected, told to like, don't encounter new ideas, but hopefully somehow when you turn 19 and you go away to college, you'll like you know, be able to sift the good from the bad. And they basically just get steamrolled and they don't know what to think anymore. And it's like this full disillusionment instead of just being like, oh, that could be wise or that could not be wise. Let me think about that for a little while. Yeah. And if your faith is able to flex, if your ideas about God are able to flex and they're they're actually really, really big, then you can take these ideas in stride. And it's actually, I don't know, it just seems so much bigger and fuller and more able to play in the real world, I guess. Totally. And like this, like we're in no way saying that this isn't some postmodern assertion that there is no truth and all truth is relative. And it's also not a statement that certain ideas aren't way better than other ideas and more true than other ideas. I mean, much of what this podcast is, is doing is us trying to say that they're, they're better, healthier, more life-giving, loving, fruitful, and less oppressive ways of thinking about things, right? Especially thinking about God. So the main, the main thing is that this idea that there is a slope that we have to avoid, it actually stunts our growth and keeps us from developing the capacity to be able to sift through what is true and what isn't true, to be able to sift through the good and the bad and the ugly and actually go out and live a full life in the world discerning wisdom. And instead, it it is promoting this idea of a sort of intellectual disengagement where we're supposed to avoid contact with those ideas, right? That's why, again, we talked about how like reading, you know, reading Rob Bell's book or like following Richard Rohr's devotions like those are considered dangerous activities. Why would encountering another person's ideas, aside from whether or not you agree or believe in them, why would encountering another person's ideas be dangerous or toxic to you? They would only be dangerous if you have no capacity within you to decide for yourself whether or not those are 
are good ideas. The presumption basically is what it, this this way of thinking is actually producing, which is a world of people who actually don't have the capacity to discern very well between what are good ideas and what are bad ideas. Yeah, I haven't seen a whole heck of a lot of that. I haven't seen a whole heck of a lot of not being allowed to read other people or things, um, even if it's not like encouraged, hey, go check out this or whatever. Um, I haven't heard. You're allowed to. It's just dangerous, right? It's it's dangerous if you are considering ways to incorporate that into your your experience of who God is. If you're doing it to to kind of reinforce and 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 build um, up the theology that you already have, I don't think anyone would see the danger in that. I guess. I can just say the slope has been a wonderful ride um, in the sense that, like you said, I mean, this side of the slope, I'm just so excited about life and the world and my faith and how that all like plays together. It's just such a big, big, beautiful picture. And the downside is that I think it comes at a, at a relational cost. Um, the sad part is is exactly what I was trying to do in the old world. Sometimes, I mean, it wasn't my main goal, but one of the goals was to protect the flock from these voices and protect the flock from these ideas and, and be there with them to kind of like talk through those ideas and then help them not, not go too far astray. Um, when you are now <laughs> that person um, that has slid down the slope... I think there's a there's a fear about you. There's a fear for you. Um, I mean, that's why we named the show what we named the show. It's because not that we think these ideas are heretical, but it's it's saying what what we would have called these ideas in that circle. Yeah, and I think it's it's almost part of why we went with the title "almost heretical." Is like from that mindset, almost heretical is heretical like almost heretical is just as dangerous, just as much to be feared because it means you're you're plummeting or about to plummet off the slippery slope. So even ideas that are well within orthodoxy, if they seem like they're close to the edge, right? Um, it's easy to get lumped into that edge. But especially for, for those of us who have, you know, like you said, uh, decided the slippery slope isn't something we're scared of, we're willing to to slide down or basically just explore the broader world at large. Um, when we walked out of the box or the circle and, you know, publicly stated to our friends, family, whoever, that, you know, we aren't trying to identify as insiders anymore, it it really does come at a cost. Like you lose friends, you lose a kind of relationship. There's a lot of <laughs> judgment that gets cast. But also, like, I remember my wife, Monique, um, she's a bit more extroverted than I am. And when we left our church, it's kind of a whole different set of events, which caused us to leave, which we haven't shared on the podcast yet, but felt like we had to leave. And and I remember we sat down and had a conversation where we very much were like, man, that that really was this kind of crazy tribe. And so much of the tribalism that held us in that tribe, we're really glad to be liberated from. We're glad to be out of that tribe. And Monique could say at the very same time, I miss being part of a tribe. I miss that feeling 
of, of tribal connection to know I belong, that I'm wanted here, that I am included as one of the insiders. There's a very real psychological, emotional uh, gratification that comes with being a, an included member of an exclusive group. And, and I think that's so much of what makes it really hard emotionally. I think intellectually, there are all these obstacles to walking away from the, the version of faith that you've been told you have to hold on to. But then emotionally, leaving the tribe can be even more difficult, right? Giving up those, those bonds. Even though we've felt like the tribalism and especially the exclusivism of the world we had come from was something that had been toxic for us, toxic for others, and something that really needed to be undone, it's really easy to miss the tribe itself and miss the benefits, the emotional benefits of being a a part of such an exclusive group. And that's why we started a podcast. And more importantly, why we started kind of uh, being with people who have also gone outside that, that tribe and that circle as we have. And so we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to connect with you in some way. Um, reach out to us. Contact at almostheretical.com. We'd love to hear your story. If it's big, small, you feel like it's significant, not significant, uh, it's a story and it's important and we'd love to hear it. So we're here for you and we're here with you on this journey. Wait, uh, just one more thing, Nate. One thing that I think is worth acknowledging is that church in America is structured around different groups who are very certain about their particular interpretations. Church and communities of Christians don't exist that are structured around open-mindedness, diversity, you know, a broad spectrum of, of people and opinions. So what happens is when you, when you leave the, the rigidity and the tribalism of one church— and you go to seek something new, there essentially is no alternative other than other churches who are structured around other versions of rigid theological ideas. And I think that's, a, that's an overstatement. There are awesome communities out there doing awesome things. I think that what it's kind of left so many of us in, honestly, probably millions of us, is in this sort of like in-between purgatory no-man's land where we have left the old ordered community and we are in this kind of disordered communityless chaos and we have yet to find ways to like reorder new communities or new experiences of community and so Nate and I and our families feel like we're in that same experience ourselves like don't really know what a new life of faith and ministry looks like for us and we're hoping that in some way this podcast almost radical can like participate in that journey with others and find and be creative about new ways of experiencing and doing church uh, that aren't just a reversion back to what we walked away from. Sweet. All right. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we're going to do a kind of a fun episode for our 20th episode. Um, All I'll say is that our wives are going to be on the show, which is pretty fun. After that, we have a number of guests coming on and We're just really excited to bring more voices on the show. Last thing, like I said, if you want to get in contact with us, please do. It's contact at almostheretical.com. The emails we read each week 
are honestly what keeps us going on this show. And we'd love to start reading more of those on the air. So definitely reach out, share your story, and we'd love to connect with you. Peace.